follow along as I read from 1 Timothy chapter 3. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, the teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the, the, uh, the first church that I worked in, as a pastor in, was part of a denomination that had a sort of code of conduct, if you will, for becoming a member. Every church, many churches have membership, have some sort of membership covenant. And this church had a sort of code of conduct that was part of their membership covenant. And among the things, among the commitments that you had to make was a commitment to abstain from um, alcohol uh, and from any use of tobacco. Now, at the time, uh, I didn't think much of this. I really wanted a job as a pastor, to be quite frank. Uh, you know, I had gone to pastor school and um, was tired of driving school buses and uh, was really wanting to become be a pastor and to, to do that work. And, 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 and also, I didn't really plan to drink any alcohol or use any tobacco. I was not uh, one that did either of those things anyways. And so it didn't really matter to me. In fact, if I'm really honest, although my heart was too, dece- too, too deceptive for me to see it at the time, in reality, I actually thought I was a better Christian because of my abstinence from those things. And so it was a little bit of a badge of honor to me to say, sure, I can sign up for that. I've already signed up for that. You, don't, you didn't realize you were hiring a, re- hiring a really good Christian to be a pastor. This is no problem. Beyond, if I'm honest, though I wouldn't have admitted it at the time, everyone who didn't agree with me on that issue, I thought was probably either, you know, a sinner or just unenlightened. You know, they were just ignorant. It seemed like a valid thing, a valid opinion to hold at the time when I looked around at people around me who claimed to be Christians, and yet their lives were often clearly in violation of God's Word. And that bothered me. Let me. Let's not talk about the places in my own life that I was, you know, ignoring, or I was in violation to God's Word. We won't talk about that. There seemed to be a disconnect for me between what these people said that they knew and how they lived. They were like sheep wandering all over the place. 
And they needed some fences to kind of wrangle them in, I thought. It wasn't enough to recognize God's fences that he had given. No, that clearly wasn't working. What we needed was more fences. If some fences are good, I thought, then more fences must be better, right? But more isn't better. Better is better. We think that we're really holy when we build more fences for ourselves and for others. We think that we're more really holy when we build additional fences for the other sheep in God's flock who are more foolish and sinful than us. I thought, I thought it would keep me protected from Satan's temptation. But I didn't realize, what I didn't realize is I had already fell for one of his most insidious lies, one of his most insidious little tricks. You see, you remember all the way back in uh, uh, the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, Satan's first step in tempting Eve wasn't to put into question whether the, rest, the restrictions ought to be looser, but it was actually to put into question whether God actually had tighter restrictions. First thing he said was, did God really say that you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? We think we're upholding God's holiness, but we're actually attempting to improve on it. And if you attempt to improve on God's holy standards, you're actually denying them. It's a sneaky trap. It's easy to fall into. What I want to argue this morning is that the only way to produce right behavior among the sheep in God's household is to keep our eyes by faith on the shepherd. To keep our eyes by faith on the fences that he shows us to enter into those ways and in such also be led into the freedom of green pastures and of quiet waters that he's given us to enjoy. And so in a sentence, what I hope to communicate to you this morning is this. We look to Christ. We look to Christ in order to look like Christ. That's how we do that. If we want to look like Christ, then the first step, the thing that's going to empower us to do so, the thing that we must absolutely do is we must look to Christ. To Christ alone, by faith. And Paul does this by presenting first what he is going to call the mystery of godliness, and then that is going to be contrasted to what I am going to call this morning the mirage of godliness, a a sort of appearance of godliness that is actually godlessness. I want to consider this looking to Christ. I want to consider how we can look to Christ And explain it in this way. I want to explain the goal, the reason, the source, the deception, and the direction. Okay? So just five points. Don't worry. There will only be a few sub points as well. So 
The goal, the reason, the source, the deception, the direction. All right, what's the goal? The goal is this. We ought to know how to behave. Church, we ought to know how to behave. We need to know how to behave in God's household. Paul hopes to come soon, he says, but just in case he is delayed, he's sending a letter uh, ahead of time with these instructions, okay? These verses are a sort of purpose statement for the letter. Right here in the middle, right here in the end of chapter 3, Paul's saying, this is why I'm writing this letter. This is really important, and I couldn't wait until I got there, and so I'm sending it ahead that you may know how one ought to behave. Now, observe a few things in this sentence. First, this behavior must be learned. It doesn't come automatically to us in its fullness. We don't just poof, know it. Paul says, so you may know. He does not assume that Timothy or the church will simply connect the dots. The sheep need a shepherd. The sheep need guidance. Second, this behavior is for everyone. The you in you may know is singular, and it's addressing Timothy, that you, Timothy, may know how, one, how all the church members ought to behave. Timothy must shepherd. Timothy must teach the church according to what the shepherd has laid out. Third, this behavior is necessary. It's learned, it's for everyone, it's necessary. It's how one ought to behave. The urgency even of Paul in not even waiting until he arrives to give it, to, because it's just too important that they would know right now how, that they would begin to enact these things, that Timothy would begin to teach these things before Paul even got there. It was that important. They ought to know how to behave. And finally, this behavior is a way of living. By behave, he doesn't mean some sort of shallow, um, moralistic uh, list of do's and don'ts, you know. Uh, we are often um, addicted to sort of like, well, just kind of tell me what, which fences, you know, what are the do's, what are the don'ts, uh, so that we can look to ourselves and our own power and our own effort to get things done. But as you're going to see in this passage, that's the exact thing that Paul is trying to turn us away from. He doesn't want us to look to ourselves. He wants us to look to Christ. It's not just a shallow, moralistic list of do's and don'ts. This is a manner of life. It's a way of living that's based on biblical principles, not on pragmatics. That takes these deep biblical principles all the way through Scripture, all the way back to Genesis 1, and it, and it shoots them through the reality of who Christ is, and then, and, then it, and then it projects for us how we, under Christ, are to live. Paul repeatedly testifies that knowledge is critical to our becoming as God would have us. Let me give you a few examples. Romans 12, 2, it says this, uh, to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind. And then you'll do God's will. Or Ephesians 4.23, it says this, Or in taking off the old self, we are, quote, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And the result is that a new self, a new self created after the likeness of God, begins to appear. Or take again Colossians 3.10, 
says there, quote, put off the old self with its practices, and you've put on the new self, which is what? Which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So knowledge is critical to becoming who God would have us to be. From the start of the letter, from the start of this letter, Paul has been concerned about correcting false teaching. That people would have the right knowledge and and encouraging Timothy to teach rightly. No one is more adamant about sharing the gospel than Paul, but he never stopped with just getting people saved because Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus said to, his disciples, he said to his disciples, hey, go and make disciples baptizing, and then what? And then teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. The Great Commission isn't done until people are taught how to obey Christ, until they know how they are to behave in the household of God. That's part of the Great Commission. Jesus' method for bringing that about is that we would teach. So what's the reason? Why is this so important? The reason it's so important is we ought to reflect who we belong to. We ought to reflect who we belong to. In chapter 1, the false teachers are said to promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God. Do you remember that? In in chapter 1, verse 4, These false teachings of promoting speculations rather than the stewardship of God implied the stewardship of God is what is needed. And there's a stewardship, a a God-given order or plan for building the household of his saved people. And Paul gives us three aspects of that right here, just in real quick uh, phrases. In verse 15, I want to share each of these and kind of explain why. Why this gives us reason for our behavior mattering. First, he says that we are God's household. The end of Ephesians 3, he tells us uh, this, the same church, the the church in Ephesus, he tells them that about how God unites many different households, many different families into a great household of God, that we are all adopted in his name, in his family, by his grace. That is to say, you are, We have received a name change. You bear the name of Christ because of what Christ has done for you. Now, he's saying, live according to that name. You've trusted Christ with your salvation. He's adopted you into into his family. Now, live by faith. Do you understand that Scripture says that we don't just get saved by faith. We're not only justified by faith, but it says that we have to live by faith, that our whole life as Christians is by faith. So take off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds with these new godly biblical principles. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God. It matters because we bear the family name. We bear the family likeness. Second, second reason the living God dwells among us. When the people of God, the church, gathered at Mount Sinai, right? God's presence came down on the mountain in a cloud and gave them the law 
said, God said, look, I'm your God, you're my people. I saved you from Egypt. Now live this way. God instructed them in that to build a tabernacle, do you remember? And it was to be in the middle of the camp. And wherever they went, the tabernacle was set up right in the middle. And, they, and, and all the people, all the tribes surrounded that. And God was right in the middle of the people. And there were things you could not do in the camp because that's where God's presence was. And you had to keep his place holy. Of course, God's not bound to a particular place. But in his covenant he said, I'll be your God and you be my people. He was covenantally present with them in a unique way. Friends, we are the temple of God now. Do you understand? God, by the Spirit, dwells in us, in you. And this God is not a dead God. He is alive. He's the living God, it says. Not just that he's alive, but that he is life. That the God who is life dwells in you. And that's why you have life. And that's why you can live a new life. And you don't have to live your old life anymore. That should profoundly change how we behave. That the only true living is godly living. Listen, the only true living is godly living because the only life that, that we can have comes from the one who is life. Third, we uphold the truth. We're God's household. The living God dwells among us, and we uphold the truth as a, the pillar and buttress or the support and the foundation. That doesn't mean, it's not saying that the church uh, creates or decides what the truth is, but rather by confessing the truth, by defending it against errors, as Paul has been instructing Timothy to do, and, and by living according to that truth, the church supports, defends, and even holds up the truth to a dying world. The world can see and hear in us the difference between the truth of God and error. See, so too many people in our, in our world and too many people in the church today want to say that the best way to reach a world for Christ is, is to take on things in the world, to, 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 to um, accommodate to the world, to look a little bit more like the world so that they'll listen to the gospel. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you need to look different than the world. That you need to be a city on a hill. That you need to be a light in the darkness. The true religion is being unstained from the world. Sorry, I get a little fired up about some of these things. Because it's just, it, it hurts my soul. The way in which Satan... And his lies permeate God's people. It does damage to their lives, and it does damage to God, the witness of Christ in the world. In short, we reflect the one to whom we belong and who dwells in us and shines through us. How do we cast the right reflection? Now, here, here's the high mark. Here's the high mark, I think, of this passage. The central point, the big the big 
piece of the whole book, maybe even. Right here in verse 16, the source of the ability to behave the way we ought in God's household is this. We ought to look to Christ. We must look to Christ. I want to highlight a few, a few points here. The first point I want to bring out is this. Don't look at the instrument of faith, but look at the object of faith. Don't look at the instrument of faith, look at the object of faith. At the start of the letter, he said that the stewardship is the stewardship from God that is by faith. And we can fool ourselves into thinking, the reason I don't behave how I should is because I need more faith. I need bigger faith. It's a problem with, it's with my faith. I need to be better. Our eyes begin to turn inward on ourselves. And under the guise of being a committed Christian, we become actually self-focused rather than Christ-focused. It's about our faith rather than the faith. It's about how faithful we are rather than the faithful one. And the irony is it actually makes us less faithful because we're trusting ourselves, not Christ. And it makes us more depressed because we're looking at, how, at ourselves and we look down into our heart. And what do we find there? We find darkness. We find sin. We find crap. That's what we find. And then we go, oh man, I'm such a terrible Christian. I was trying to be a better Christian. And all I found out was I was a worse Christian than I thought. And Jesus is going, stop it. Stop it. If you're dying of thirst, you don't go shopping for faucets. You don't go spend your time analyzing which faucet is best. You don't go to your friend's house and say, how's your faucet? How's your faucet doing? Is it a good faucet? Look at my faucet. I don't think it's a very good faucet. No, you get water. That's what you get. You go to the water. The faucet is just the instrument by which you get the water. Right? If you're in a desert, wandering, don't, you want water. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, how do we mess this up all the time? I mess this up all the time. Verse 16 starts, great indeed, great indeed. Not great indeed is your faith. Great indeed is the faith. Great indeed, we confess the confession the thing, this, this universal and undeniable truth that we confess, it is great indeed. It's the water that brings us life. What is this truth? He describes it as the mystery of godliness. Mystery here is not something unknown to us, but it's something that's been made known to us. It's been made known through Christ. It was previously obscured, but now it's revealed. This is God's plan to save sinners, to, to make a people, to glorify his name in the world, set forth from the foundation of the world. Before anything was created, he had already had the plan laid out. But it's revealed. It's been revealed in Jesus' life. But here, here Paul doesn't use the phrase mystery of faith like he did earlier in the chapter. Do you remember earlier in the chapter he used the phrase mystery of faith? For some reason here he uses the phrase mystery of godliness. He doesn't use that anywhere else. In fact, he talks a lot about godliness in this book, does he not? So why does he use this phrase mystery of godliness? Well, I 
think there's a reason. Paul goes into this hymn or this poem, and it, and it, and it frames this beautiful picture of the mystery of godliness. And the, and the frame is necessary. Again, the frame is necessary, but the point is not the frame. The point is what you are to look at. It's what's in the frame. And again, what I'm going to tell you is this. The point is not your faith. Your faith is only the frame. You don't go to you know, the art gallery and go, I want to see a great Rembrandt, and go, oh, look at that frame. That's so, such a wonderful frame. Ah, it could be a better frame, you know? No! You look at the painting. That's what you're there to see. That's what you're mesmerized by. That's what you're awed by. And so he writes this beautiful hymn, this beautiful poem. And, and this is the second point that I want to draw out here in this, in this, um, in this third point. <laughs> it's the second point to the third point. All right. The object of faith is Christ crowned King of creation. The beauty of God in the flesh who dwelt among us, who did not only die, did not only live a perfect life, did not only die for our sin, but He rose from the dead bodily and is now reigning over all things. We can live godly Because Christ is alive and is over everything. I want to break this down, this hymn down in in, in a couple of different, in three different couplets. There's a lot of debate about how this hymn should be brought down, uh, broken apart, and what it was meant to convey and stuff. And I just, this is is the way that I think it just makes the most sense to me with with the text and with the context here. So I'm going to, this is what I'm going to share with you. Okay, so first, First in lines one and two, we see that Christ accomplished his work. I believe this first line isn't pointing to his incarnation per se, but it's actually pointing to his bodily resurrection, that he, was, he God, was manifested in the flesh, having been raised from the dead. He didn't uh, come back from the dead as just merely a spirit or some sort of ghost. He came back in a body, in the flesh. And this connects with line two because it says he was vindicated by the Spirit. And Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, he says this, quote, He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The way that the Spirit vindicated Christ as, as the Son of God, as perfect uh, in his obedience and as having victory over sin, is he brought him back from the dead. And that's how everyone knows he really is who he says he is, and he really did do what he said he did. And so Christ accomplished his work. Second, Christ's accomplished work is made known. First, it's seen by angels. The point here is that it's clearly known in all the cosmos, to all the spiritual powers and all the spiritual forces that exist in unseen creation. The fabric of heaven and earth changed when God himself died and then rose from the dead. The world cannot be the same when that happens. And every, every power, every force, everything in the unseen realm saw that that happened. It's undeniably true to them. Whereas the cosmic powers see it, it says that to the nations of people, Christ is being proclaimed. He is being made known through proclamation. 
that's how he has, in his sovereignty, chosen to make himself known what he's done. So Christ accomplished his work. Christ's accomplished work is made known. Finally, Christ's work accomplishes a response. People are believing on him in the world. He is believed on in the world. That was clearly seen to the Ephesians in that day. The gospel was having a greater effect than all of the false teachers. And he was taken up in glory. He was glorified and he is reigning in heaven over all. To summarize it, I'll summarize it a different way. His His resurrection proved Jesus is king, his good news proclaims Jesus is king, and his church responds, Jesus is king. It's a beautiful picture. It's a Rembrandt, if you will. But there is yet one more part of this confession that I think is key for Paul's purpose. Did you notice something unique about this poem? It took me a while. I had to read this over a number of times before I started to kind of pick up on this. There is, in each couplet, there is an earthly and a heavenly aspect. There is a seen and an unseen aspect. It goes, it goes uh, seen, unseen, unseen, seen, seen, unseen, all the way through. Jesus is the point at which heaven and earth, the seen and the unseen, come together. In Ephesians 1, is, uh, Paul says this. He says uh, that God set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Elsewhere, he says that, that we look forward to the, the, the Jerusalem that's above, and he says that it's coming down. It's coming down right now to earth. God is doing it. He is the Son of God, come to earth so that we can be sons of God, adopted into God's family. He is God with us, the Word from the beginning who put on human flesh and dwelled among us. He is the truth incarnate, the very imprint of the divine nature, Hebrews 1 says. He took on death, the death that we deserved, so that we could live eternally. Yes, but but He did not stay dead. He came back, not just in spirit, but also in the flesh. And he came back bodily. If he came back bodily, then what we do in our bodies matters. And if he came back bodily and he came to life, then we can live according to him. Do you get that? This is why it's the mystery of godliness. Because God himself was manifested in the flesh. And by God's work, we can manifest Him in the flesh. It's only by the revealing of what Christ has done, only by Him doing that work and us believing on it, that we're able to live godly lives. He is the source. We look to Christ in order to look like Christ. And this has tremendous application on what Paul is saying beforehand, on knowing how to behave and being able to behave, but also it has tremendous application to what is going to come ahead. If Jesus is living water in the desert, then Satan wants us chasing mirages. That's what he wants us to do. He wants us to spend our time chasing mirages so that we can never enjoy the water of life. And if we have faith in Christ, 
for salvation, he wants to keep as much water away from us as possible. And so we have this deception, a mirage of godlessness. And I want, I want to observe a few things in the text about what this mirage is. First, the mirage is opposed to the mystery. For one says, now. Now, it connects the false teaching to what has come before, the mystery of godliness. Furthermore, those devoted to the mirage, it says, have departed from the faith. They once held to the mystery of godliness. They once were in the church. They once were confessing believers. They once were among us. In fact, they probably still are among them. And yet they have departed the faith. They've devoted themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons rather than the mystery of godliness. Second, it comes from in the church. This teaching is deceitful. It's tricky. The mirage is taught through the insincerity of liars, it says, or hypocritical liars. You could, you could translate it. The word there is like one big long word. I won't try to pronounce the Greek word, but, but it, it carries this kind of meaning of being like actors who play parts so well that their words have a ring of truth. Listen, this is why the mirage of godliness is so difficult. Because it's teachers who have been in the church, who have been considered Christian, who who as a teacher and whose teaching presents itself with validity, even some authority. They have an appearance of godliness. But listen, it says these liars have seared consciences. Literally, it means that they are, they've been cauterized from their conscience. They have no ability to tell what's right from what's wrong. So it's, it's a mirage because it, it really can look like the right thing. It can really sound pretty good. Third, this mirage, it presents good creation as bad. It presents good creation as bad. Paul gives us two examples that uh, most likely were the prominent ones that were going on in the Ephesian church at the time. He says that these, are, these guys are forbidding marriage. Most likely, they're forbidding marriage because they're forbidding sex. And the other... Uh, uh, is re the other um, example is that they're requiring the abstinence from food. And based on the Greek word that's used there, most likely what they're abstaining from, most likely what they're requiring abstinence from is meat. So they're saying, you know, you can't get married, you can't eat, eat meat. Those, those are bad. Those things are intrinsically bad. And, and, and if you do that, then, then you're unholy. You're, you're not righteous. We typically think godlessness is doing whatever one wants, you know, right? Like, like calling bad things good and just doing whatever you want. That's what we typically think of when we think of godlessness. But Paul is saying that, there, that it also goes the other way. That demon teaching forbids what should not be forbidden and denies to people what God created as a good gift. That's demon teaching. That's demonic because it's so insidiously tricky. Because at the core of it, it's trying to create a standard that is different than what God's standard is. 
perhaps even pitting God's redemptive work against his creative work. But listen, God's grace is not opposed to creation. God's grace is to take care of sin in creation, not because there's a problem with creation. And thus the mirage says to God, I know you said this was good, but I've decided that it's not. I've decided something else is good. All that to say, it has an appearance of godliness. The, mir- the mirage of godliness says, look, look, I- I'm smart, well-known Christian pastor. Y- you can trust. Doesn't this sound right? Doesn't this sound good? Doesn't this tickle your ears? Doesn't this seem like the right thing to do? Instead of God's word and God's son being the standard of right and wrong, it makes us the standard while giving the appearance that we really care about Jesus. We really care about love and we really care about God and we really care about doing the right thing. But it's not the right thing. The mirage of godliness says you want to be holy, right? To be truly holy, then you need to cut yourself off from this or from that. It moves sin out of us and out of our hearts and puts that on something in creation instead and just, just stay away from that thing and then you'll, you'll be all right as if, as if it was creation that makes us sinful rather than our sin that's made creation corrupt. And it is a particularly insidious and deceptive kind of sin because it looks like it would be good, but what it is hiding is arrogance and pride Arrogance and pride that says, I know a better way to be a Christian than Christ does. Arrogance and pride that says, I know a better way to be godly than God does. It's the teaching of demons because they learned it from the one who originated the idea, their leader, Satan. It's a lie that says, you don't have to look to the good shepherd so long as you build enough fences. That's the problem, right? So long as you build enough fences, Cody, then you don't have to look to the good shepherd anymore. You don't have to rely on him. You don't have to trust him. Trust your fences instead. And so somehow we think we can come, uh, be saved, be justified through faith, and then go on living through faith in ourselves. But what Paul says is that actually just produces apostates. It produces people whose faith are shipwrecked, who destroy themselves. Look, <laughs> Satan wants to tell you, look, look, the wolves are getting in. The wolves are getting into the fences. We need to build more fences. We need to kind of hem, hem ourselves in over here because the wolves are getting in. The wolves are getting in. But really, it's wolves that are telling you that so they can pin you into a corner and then devour you. So they can keep you hemmed away from the good shepherd and from the green pastures that he's leading you to. So they can keep you from safe hills and from the enjoyment of quiet waters that Christ wants for you if you would just look to Him. 
if we believe and know the truth, we know that God said creation is good, that sin has disrupted it. A holy God lived in creation. And everywhere, he's restoring creation. He's uniting all things in heaven on earth in him, right? He then died in that creation and rose again in a created body. He sets us free from the sin that has corrupted good creation. Not to take us out of creation, but he leaves us in creation. So that we can enjoy God and the creation as he intended it. Therefore, we don't merely receive these things. We don't merely receive uh, the things of creation, but we receive them, he says, with thanksgiving, and that's the critical phrase. That's the critical phrase here. We receive it with thanksgiving. This is Paul's way of saying we receive it by faith. We receive it recognizing God as the good giver. We receive it recognizing God as the standard setter. We receive it recognizing God, not ourselves, as our redemption and the only way in which we can live. It takes faith because sinful people, ourselves included, take good gifts of creation and distort and twist them and use them sinfully. And we do this over and over again rather than enjoying creation by faith in God, even in the church. Even in the church, those who do not know how to behave in God's household idolize things in creation, abuse them, and they act lawlessly, right? The drunks get drunk. And the sexually immoral do sexual immorality. And the, glutton, the gluttonous are gluttonous. They idolize those things and they're lawless in them. But this legalism of rigid abstinence and false asceticism is a mirage of godliness because its proponents, of which I have been at times, point the finger saying, look, those people idolize created things. And in doing so, they fail to see that they are not acting in faith either. They're not acting in faith in God either. They are idolizing themselves in their own effort. They are idolizing the fences that they've come up with by placing themselves as a judge over God's standard and thus putting their faith in something other than God and His Word. You see? Trust these fences. You don't have to trust in Christ. The mystery of godliness keeps us from both of those mistakes. We look to Christ in order to look like Christ. We trust God that for the, the way He created us to enjoy these things. And listen, if we get something wrong along the way, if we trip over a fence we should have seen and we didn't, we look to Christ and His forgiveness and His correction. And He's the good shepherd who picks up the sheep carries them back to where they should go, and places them back by nice, calm waters. That is a good shepherd. Where do we get this direction? Well, we get it from God's Word and from prayer. We have to be consistent in the Word and prayer. Where can we go to have a greater vision of Christ and a greater direction for how we are to behave in God's Word? Paul says we have two resources, two means of grace here through which God has promised to give us direction. We have God's Word. We have to decide, am I the standard or is God's Word the standard? 
Are we willing to honestly study the scriptures and see what they say and then do it? Are we willing to be corrected by them? If we come to God's word, ready to learn, looking to obey, desiring to know his will, then our minds are renewed, our lives are transformed. God has promised it. He's promised the Spirit will do it. The second we have prayer, will I listen to myself or will I listen to the Holy Spirit? Will I in humility come to my knees and go, God, I need your direction. I don't know. I'm not sure. Do I have this right? Lord, will you help me? Now, I don't mean the kind of Christian who throws around prayer as some sort of excuse to do whatever they want to, you know, like you've heard people say, well, I prayed about this a lot, and so, you know, I must be right because I prayed about it once. This is sort of like a thing that Christians do to strong-arm people into what they think. And I mean, I mean genuinely coming to prayer. Humbly coming to our knees and seeking His guidance. See, the mirage of godliness is an insidious infection of self-righteousness that spreads under the surface undetected and can fill whole churches. It kills gratitude to God and it kills the enjoyment of God's good gifts. It destroys life. It destroys life. And it keeps us blind to that reality. No one wants to be confronted. No one wants to admit that they've been devoted to the teaching of demons, right? I mean, goodness gracious, Paul, that sounds terrible. Couldn't you have said it nicer? No, because it's that big of a deal, right? I didn't want to hear it years ago, and I thank God he put someone in my life who loved me enough to patiently and graciously tell me I was wrong to point me to Scripture and to pray for me. And I thank God that I listened to His Word and I listened to His Spirit. And pride keeps us from seeing clearly, but remember, God opposes the proud and He gives grace to the humble. And if you recognize your error and you confess it and you, can re- and you repent of it, then you can know that His grace on you moving forward will be greater than all of your mistakes in the past. I promise you. He's a good shepherd. And the pastures that are before you are far greener than the pastures behind you are brown. If we look to Christ, our great shepherd, and the fences he has for us, he will provide us the right safety so we can have freedom to roam and to enjoy. And we will begin to look like him. And now we'll give guidance to even more of his sheep. Listen, we'll still make mistakes in this life. But because Christ rose from the dead, we have a great hope. We have a great hope for eternity that motivates us to look more and more like him today. Listen to what John wrote in 1 John chapter 3. He says this, Beloved, beloved church, that's you. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but what we know, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because, why? Why? Listen, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Look to Christ. Look to Christ and look like Christ. Let's pray.